Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Brendan Gall, an actor, writer, and producer whose credits include producing The L.A. Complex and Blindspot with Martin Garrow and writing and producing The Go-Getters with Aaron Abrams. Aaron and Brendan's latest collaboration, The Lovebirds, stars Issa Rae and Kamail Nanjiani and was supposed to open theatrically last month. It's now premiering on Netflix this Friday, May 22nd, and you'll want to keep an eye out for it. Brendan picked Magnolia, Paul Thomas Anderson's epic multi-character drama about people in crisis in Los Angeles. This is, of course, a profoundly simplistic description of what that movie is and how Anderson does what he does. Following his acclaimed Boogie Nights with another ensemble project, Anderson reunited a lot of the same faces, Julianne Moore, John C. Riley, Philip Baker Hall, Philip Seymour Hoffman, William H. Macy, Melora Walters, while mixing in new players like Tom Cruise, Jason Robards, and Henry Gibson. But where Boogie Nights was an affectionate comedy about deluded misfits that curdles into darkness and misery, with Magnolia, Anderson went hard for drama. Using the songs of Amy Mann as both inspiration and soundtrack, he built a shattering, emotionally devastating work of pure feeling and one that will not let go until it's done. Released at the end of 1999, Magnolia landed on the cinematic landscape like a bomb or a rain of frogs. This is someone else's movie. I feel like Magnolia couldn't have been better positioned to uh, uh, arrive in my eyeballs at a, at, you know, at a better time. It was, I think I was in first or second year theater school, and um, it just... You know, I was a kid of the 90s, so like, you know, Tarantino and all of this sort of like return to uh, dialogue and film and, and monologue and these big beefy things. But it was all violence. And and um, to my mind, like uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was an extension of all that stuff. But there's like there's no violence in his movies, really. I mean, there's moments of it, but they're not they're not inherently violent stories. They're not crime stories. Um, and. You know, I, I remember hearing things, interviews with him where he was, you know, his influences in a big way are like, you know, terms of endearment, ordinary people. He talks, he name checks movies like that. You know, he wants to feel things. Yeah. Um, and I definitely can relate to that and, and appreciate that kind of that focus on on kind of emotion. Um, and yeah, just the, the scope of it, you know, um, the sort of mosaic um, interconnected uh, story. Like I, I was thinking about it after I rewatched it and. I never think of Magnolia as being one chunk of time, but it is. It really happens over a very short, you know, period of essentially one chunk of time in a row. Yeah, it's like um, 24 hours in a straight. I don't even think it's 24 hours. I think it's I think it's like I think it starts, you know, in the lead up to going to see uh, uh, starting the game show. And I think it goes into that night. You know, I think it's like 12 hours, maybe. And I think also just the the. The stable of actors that that he w- w- was building, you know, I, I'd seen Boogie Nights, I hadn't seen Heart Eight at that point, and then going back and seeing that, you know, Philip Baker Hall and John C. Riley and, and Philip Seymour Hoffman are in his first movie as well, and then he just sort of collects this incredible ensemble, um, and that, you know, his his visuals are so stylish, the camera almost never stops moving, and it could be a very entertaining film without that level of performance because the style is so prominent, but then he also has every single, like to a man, every performance is just kind of astonishing to my mind. Oh yeah. Um, You know, people just swinging so hard and just so invested in his vision that it's just sort of a joy to watch something that feels so on purpose. Yeah. I, I mean, I was a little, Oh, I was a little older. I was 31, I guess. Uh And it just, 
it was one of those situations where the expectation could not have been higher for a number of reasons. I loved Boogie Nights. I was yeah. I was kind of iffy on Heart Eight. It felt, I think it was just the way it was released and the way it arrived and the fact that Sam Jackson's sure. in it. It felt too close, like a Tarantino wannabe. Uh-huh. Well, I, it was also apparently it was also re-edited. It was taken away from him. Yeah, it's not his cut. I know that. It's not too. his cut, right? Yeah. So I'd be very curious to know what it what it would have looked like in his hands. Yeah. But yes, it's a smaller movie. Yeah, and at the time it just felt like well, you remember what it was like. There was this wave of of imitations, and yeah. I just thought, oh, this is good. But I've seen this sort mm-hmm. of genre, and it's a guy trying to do that. And then Boogie Nights comes along, and you're like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I take it back. No. He's a thing. He's a, yeah. he's an original. He's his own thing. And then with Magnolia. It was the last one was 1999 that was screened for consideration by the Toronto Film Critics Association. So we saw it on, we voted, we always vote on a Friday night. We saw it at one o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, cold. Yeah. Because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't done the week before. It wasn't ready for us for whatever reason. And, and Alliance had it at the time and they were saying, you know, like they were just basically saying what New Line was telling us, which is just wait, just wait, it's coming. We will. Mm-hmm. And we were we were all very excited because we would like to see this movie that now we can't see. And you know how it goes when when you when something suddenly becomes inaccessible and yep. it's a, a breakneck race to the finish line to see this thing. And you know how long it is too. Yeah. We were trying to I, w- I was, you know, we're, are we gonna fit it? Are we gonna make it into our schedule? And they screened it for us and as soon as it ended, all of us were just like covered in sweat and, and tears <laughs> and it's like oh that's our winner it yeah. was we voted and there were some people a couple people didn't like it as much but it was just one of those things where i have seen movies like this before i don't think i've seen a better version of this thing no and that includes like all of robert altman's movies i it's, was gonna say i mean yeah shortcuts is clearly an influence oh yeah um and he even has i guess i mean well philip baker hall was an altman guy is that right and then, he, yeah, he did a lot of stuff with them. Yeah, and then Julianne Moore is in Shortcuts. Yeah, uh, right. So there's this sort of like he's borrowing. And then I also feel like the the um, John C. Riley cop character has uh, owes a debt slightly to the the Tim Robbins cop in in Shortcuts a little bit. Yeah, it feels like there's, there's yeah. possibly echoes if nothing else. Like they probably yeah. yes they share um, a locker or something. Like there's some right. kind of continuity. Yeah. Yes. But um, what Anderson brings is the technical facility that Altman doesn't always care about. Right? No. Like, he makes Will, beautiful movies. Willfully doesn't but, care about. Yeah. It yeah. feels like Altman just sets cameras up and sets microphones on tables. And he's like, well, we'll catch what we catch. And we're, we'll feel like we're at another table over here. And we just sort of, like, are sort of like eavesdropping or whatever. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's yeah. it's not neglectful, but it's there's a shabbiness. There's a knowing yeah. shabbiness to a lot of Altman's filmmaking. And this is just gorgeous, like beautiful, yeah. stunning enveloping i remember the sound design we saw it at the var- one of the varsity rooms and it was just this gorgeous spinning you know the the crop dusters and and, yes. and the, the activity and the, the busyness of it it, it and, never stops coming at you either like it feels yeah. like and it's interesting it reminds me in some ways of um casino it, but i don't love casino casino feels to me like a movie that is all intro like i feel like that movie never starts oh, yeah. in some ways it's and i think maybe the voiceover doesn't help but the camera's moving and it's all these stylish shots and you know how the, and it's like here's how the casino works how, here's how vegas works now here's this guy over here it's like it feels like he's setting everything up and then i feel like 
Oh, and then the movie's over. Yeah. Uh, now that he set everything up, he's like, and that's the end. But yeah, somehow, no, there's there's no catharsis. Like it's all no. And, and I feel like there's a, there's a similar feeling in Magnolia. The music never stops coming at you and, until the third act when it drops out entirely. Mm-hmm. And the camera really never stops moving except for very specific instances. It's all of these wonders, all of these beautiful uh, steady cam shots, these long, intricate shots that are just like so astonishing. And it's, you know, I felt like when I saw it, oh, this is an amazing intro. And then the, the style just never lets up. And you're just like, holy shit. It's, it's, it is un, undeniably its own thing in this in this really astonishing way to me. Um, I also, you know, I couldn't believe that movie is three hours and eight minutes long. I know, I know it's a it long movie. Flies by. I do not feel like that is a three-hour movie. Like, I, if someone asked me to guess, I would have said like two hours and twenty minutes, or you know, something like that. It is. It's. It holds my attention entirely. Yeah, I. I mean. It's the pulpingness of it, right? Like it just keeps hitting you. It's, yes, it's either visually or orally assaulting you, or then yes. it's just punching you in the heart. Yeah, and and the the orchestration of it, like it really does feel. I I keep coming back to it when I think about his other films and how mm-hmm. how calm they are, and there's so much rage underneath. Things like Phantom Thread and mm-hmm. the Master is so tense without release, and and. Yeah, it's, it's catharsis. Catharsis are different, right? Well, but it feels Meg- like he almost entirely dropped that. I mean, it it certainly shares uh, uh, an ener- an energy with Boogie Nights that has a similar sort of big swirling kind of unstoppable thing. And then the, his next one after Magnolia was Punch Drunk. Is that right? Punch Drunk, yeah. yeah, which is intense. It's in intense a, in a very different way. It's clearly following one person, you know, and it's 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 a smaller story. It's more contained, and then you know he's he's going into smaller stories and 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 giving things more space to breathe and 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 things like that. Um, so I almost feel like, but that makes sense to me because I don't know how you would beat Magnolia um, for that that kind of movement and 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 yeah it's, yeah. It's simultaneously a young man's movie because he's showing off all the yes. things he knows and all the things he believes in he can pull off. And also the work of a really mature, like an emotionally mature person who has come through the other side of a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the movie also, I mean, I was, I never thought about this until this time, but it's all, it's all about, I think I thought because, because Ricky Jay's um, narration off the top is about coincidence and he's talking about all these this, this, this confluence of events and you know are there coincidences and, and and there's elements of that in the film but really there's it's not a coincidence that we're looking at these people because they're all you can trace the relationships they're not they're not disparate strangers who happen to collide on this one night they are all they all derive from essentially from uh jason robart's character oh yeah this this quiz show um uh so you know why you're looking at these people and not other people um so it's really to the, the the heart of that movie is about um to my mind the toxicity of bad parents or neglectful parents or abusive parents and the sort of like legacy of, of brokenness. Like every single character is broken and trying to find a way to be unbroken. Um, it's also weird to me too. I didn't, I didn't clock this until this time, but both Jason Robards and Philip Baker Hall are both dying of cancer. Yeah. You've got two characters dying of cancer in the same movie. Yeah. And there's the bizarre to me. 
Yeah, and there's the 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 implication too that they are like sort of connected by their failings. That mm-hmm. not that they're sick because of it, but that the sickness is an expression of what's yeah, wrong with it, them. I think someone actually does say that, right? Like you're sick. That's that's what. Yeah, it is. That, that that might be right. I can't remember that particular line, but yeah, it does feel like it's a manifestation of their kind of their their awfulness as humans in some ways, or the the mistakes they've made, or like they're they're boiling out of their bodies. Yeah. Well, they're um, the lesson, right? They're the lesson yes. for every other character. Um, just that speech about regret that just mm-hmm. oh, just you could I. There are very but, few movies that I've seen where you can watch the audience kind of sink back into their like into their selves into their chairs like if, if they're i like to sit at the back of a theater so i can right. I sort of feel the experience with the audience and i remember with with magnolia there weren't a lot of us in that theater but we were all just sort of taking it in the shoulders yes, during that speech because it's it. so powerful and it's so awful to well, hear robert's yeah regret Ugh. and he's so good too like i I don't know how, how many more movies did he make after that. This or was, was it. That this it? was his last. That was film. it, right? Yeah. Holy shit! He died shit. a year later. Holy shit! He is so good that just in a bed, never gets out of that bed. Yeah. And he, uh, like, I'd be so curious to know what the what the dialogue on the page was compared to how he's speaking. But the disjointed kind of half sentences and trail offs and blah blah blahs and uh, it's just so beautiful and sad. All yeah. the business with him, you know. Wanting, wanting cigarettes and Philip Hoffman, you know, lighting these fake cigarettes for him because he's a lifetime smoker who obviously can't smoke when you're dying of lung and brain cancer. Yeah. Um, and it's just, and yeah, he's just, he's just a, the embodiment of regret. But the rest of those characters, they're not, it's, they're not just learning lessons from them. They're, they're the collateral damage of yeah. those characters. They are all the, the horrible, you know, car crash echoes of these two old dying white guys. And this, this wave of people who don't know how to be people because of the the damage they've suffered. Yeah. Well, that's them. the other cancer, right? The metaphorical right. cancer that spreads right. from them instead of in them. Right. The, they've, they've metastasized through the lives of all these people. And the ones who get to see them and confront them don't get the release either. Because, again, just that, that there's something I've never forgotten. Just the... the the grace of Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance as yeah. as the world's most patient and understanding human being. Yes. Uh, but that way he delivers the line, like, once we start this medication, your father won't be your father anymore. Right. And we know it, and Cruz doesn't. Yeah. To just jump around in time in the, in the structure. Uh-huh. And it, it makes that scene so impossibly tragic. Mm-hmm. And I do think, like, it's the best work Cruz has ever done. Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by that, too. Like, I can't think of better casting for that. But I also wonder, I mean, it's amazing to us watching it because we all know Tom Cruise is in a cult. Yeah. <laughs> but Tom Cruise, I don't think, thinks he's in a cult, but he knows that other people believe <laughs> him to be in a cult. And then he's playing this character who is very clearly like the leader of this horrible male, you know. Uh, yeah. Another way the film is ahead of its time, too, because the uh, the toxic masculinity thing. Yes, toxic masculinity, but I also, it makes me question how in on the joke of Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise is. Like, how aware was he of, <laughs> of himself as a, as a, as a person being a huge reason that that, that performance is so astonishing? He's literally standing next to a giant, um, you know, placard on stage that says how to fake like you are a nice and caring person. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? Um, yeah. The, the story goes that Anderson uh, 
Aunt Cruz and Anderson got together and, and Cruz said, I want you to write a role for me, but he didn't give him any direction. Oh, and wow. this is what he came up with. And it feels to me oh, like what what um, what Anderson does with Daniel Day-Lewis, right? Like he can mm-hmm. see the essence of the actor and the thing mm-hmm. that they don't want to do. And then he finds a way to make them do nothing but that thing. Yeah. And, but, and, and I mean... And Cruz just attacks it. Like, yeah. there's no... I mean, there's I no, wonder there's how... There's no veil. There's no irony. He goes right into it. Yeah, and I wonder how he felt about it. I wonder if he was aware that this could potentially make him look bad. It's so... It's... it's. Is there a, a role in the Tom Cruise canon prior to this where he's nothing but, like, kind of the best at what he does? The, like, <laughs> you know... I mean, I guess he's the best at what he does in this, too. Oh, you but assume that's not... how he sold it to himself, right? Like, this is... No, no, this... I know this guy. I know this guy. But he could but, not have believed. I can't imagine he thought that he's a good guy. I, I mean, wonder if maybe the whole point of it is that if you get to the scene where we see who Frank really is, yes, then it's all forgiven. And with right. you know, with Tom Cruise, so many of his movies are about every other Mission Impossible movie has a speech about how he's the only person who knows what's really going on. And, and mm-hmm. I, I definitely have a type five on the Mission Impossible films being veiled Scientology allegories for outing suppressive sure. persons. Because uh, there's all the villain, the villain always comes <laughs> from inside. Amazing. They're always That's internal amazing. villains. Yeah, uh, sure. But there is something to this one that, that kind of, I think the way it's structured, the way it's written, Cruz could make it clear to himself that it, by the end of the movie, the audience knows this guy's a fraud, uh-huh. which makes it not Cruz. Right? Like it's a different enough challenge to him that way uh-huh. that he can take it on. I don't know that he does know. It's so embarrassing. So much of that performance is like his, the interview he has with the reporter mm-hmm. and his, you know, his, his showing off for her and stripping down and doing backwards somersaults. And then she's like, all right, start the camera. And he's like, oh, we weren't rolling. And he's like, he's so demonstratively performatively. Ugh, it just makes my skin <laughs> crawl, but it's like so wonderful. Yeah. Well, the neediness of it and the arrogance, yeah. right? It's, I, I'm fascinated by him. I've, and the effort of it, like it's there's nothing cool about it because he's trying so yeah. hard. Like a, which I which I really admire. You know, there's nothing. He's not sitting back at all. <laughs> um, but I also like. I wonder. I, I you know he's a he's a guy who is estranged from his dad, who he hates, loved his mother, who he had to um, see die from cancer when he was a teenager, and clearly loved his mother um, and and hates his dad. And it's so interesting to me that the character uh it runs a seminar on how to how to fuck as many women as you can yeah you know what i mean it's such an interesting psychology that i don't entirely understand because you get the sense that his dad was a sort of philandering um jerk and and somehow cruz's character has championed that in a weird way while he is also completely um denied his dad as a human yeah it's the edible thing i think right i mean he just Uh wants to be better than his father, but he's got the signals wrong. He wants to be better at his than his father at the thing he thinks his father did. Right. And he's turned that into armor, uh-huh. which, again, it it's a it's not very interesting until we see it come apart. Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, there's a reason that's the centerpiece of the movie, even more yes. so, like emotionally, even more so than the frogs. The yeah. frogs are amazing, but they are. <sighs> How can I put the it? The frogs feel like the release from Cruz's scene where he's clasping his hands together so tightly, desperately trying not to cry, and of course, bawling. Yeah. And then t- cursing at his father, but also begging him not to die. Uh, again, it feels so like perfectly uh, written for that 
man for Tom Cruise, this guy who's just like jaw clenched, like forcing himself to be the way he wants to be while, you know, forces greater than him are, are bending down on him, trying to break him. And he refuses. He refuses. It's so ugh, awful and lovely. Yeah. Well, the, and that's where the Reign of Frogs comes into my, to my mind. The, um, the thing that resonates about the biblical illusion, the fact that mm-hmm. Exodus 8-2 keeps coming up over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. There's 8-2, 82, 28. Right. Uh, and that mm-hmm. is, you know, if you refuse to let them go, I will unleash the frogs upon thee. I'm paraphrasing. Yes. But so much of the Old Testament is about God telling people, oh, you think you're in control? Right. And that's the answer to that you. scene, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, we've already had the musical number. We've already yeah. had the sing-along, mm-hmm. which is beautiful and strange and, and mm-hmm. eerie and and the last time I watched it was just so I, it's so shockingly quiet after yeah. everything after the chaos of two hours to just have yes. it all kind of give way to this song yeah. and I think that's where the music stops essentially I think that Amy pretty Mann, much yeah uh, it, essentially it's just all the all the all the music stuff drops out and it's been c- continuous up for the first two hours <laughs> yeah and then there's uh, this breath this yeah. intake of breath before that song starts or during the song really mm-hmm. and then you've got Frank's speech where he is trying to impose his will on a dying man right yeah. you know, he won't let him go and then the world just doesn't care which yeah. is so potent to me um, the way that the frog rain I mean it's just not the same at home and in a theater with the sound yes. with, the, with the, the the fact that you're sitting with however many people all trying to understand it and and create a context where it makes sense and it's fine it just it's just a thing that it just happens. is yeah which is what the kid says the quiz show kid this is this happens this is the thing that happens you know it's just a sort of simple little there's no other explanation for it this happens sometimes yeah what I, what i always take away from it is the the thing about the musical the musical format which is mm-hmm. in a musical you sing when you can't speak anymore when you right. run out of words and you have pure emotion that's when you start to it sing transcend into song yeah this scene feels like the world singing back. Right. And oh, it's great. just, or the filmmaker, right? Yeah. The idea that just when it hits this high point of emotional power and, you know, you've just watched, you can either say, I just watched a man deal with the loss of his father in, a, in an incredibly profound way, or mm-hmm. technically, I've just seen Tom Cruise do something I've never thought he could do. Yeah. And nail it. And, and kind of never did again. No, I think this scared him it's away. It's so singular. Yeah. I mean, the closest I can come to it is like Tropic Thunder and that he's he, he's he's making fun of himself in a yeah. way. But, but he this has is, the, but yeah, that he has is the safety net of the... Yeah. yeah. It's, it's clearly a wank, and, you know, whereas this is so exposed. It's so vulnerable. Yeah. And then uh, the film almost steps back from it by giving you something completely surreal and un, mm-hmm. unprecedented in order to let you parcel that scene away and just not think about it for a bit yeah because otherwise it would derail everything else because it is the high like emotionally it's the high point of the movie except for the last shot which just breaks my heart every time but what's the exact oh with Melora walters yeah just the look in her eyes as she like it's so beautiful Mm -hmm. um but what's hope finally there's hope right yeah her and john c Riley are kind of the well her and john c Riley are the hope you know that she actually he comes back and she lets him come back um, and that they maybe are going to be together and it's going to be okay. It's so beautiful. And then also it's a smaller thing, but, um, after Jason Robards dies, that uh, Tom Cruise's, uh, you know, Tom Cruise's dad dies. Um, Philip Hoffman gets a call and, and says, Oh, um, uh, I can't remember Julianne Moore's 
character name, but she's in the hospital. And he's like, right. who? And you, and he's like, you should probably talk to her. You should probably go. And you get the sense that Cruz and, and Moore are going to collide. These two people who've just lost the same man. And that possibly there's going to be some kind of hope there as well. Like a mother figure for Cruz or something. Um, but those are kind of the two points of hope in the, in the whole movie, I guess, or yeah, I guess they all have versions of it at the end. It's the possibility of redemption, right? Like they, they won't all make it. I don't Mm -hmm. think, I don't think the world works that way in this film. Riley gives, Riley gives William H. Macy another chance. He lets him put the money back. That's right. Go on his way. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't call, he doesn't bring in the cops. Yeah. Uh, And that broken mouth, William H. Macy gets to go home and think about his life choices. And I think that's because of his, this is my, like, it's not a button exactly, but something I love about um, romantic comedies to, to pull it into a different genre entirely mm-hmm. is the sense that the characters, the partners are learning from each other and yes. being better people. Like the idea that love makes you a better person. I don't know that that's always true, but when uh-huh. you see it expressed, it's just the best thing. And I got the sense that his just his interactions with Laura Walters are teaching him a little bit more about patience. It's so beautiful that 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 date where they sort of agree. She says, you know, let's let's just not, um, you know, there's so much fear about you know saying the wrong thing and and you know you won't like me or whatever. But let's just say all the things. Let's just say everything. It's like it's a first date with no small talk where they just go right into it, and it's so lovely. She's so clearly drug addled, and John C. Riley. I think doesn't care. He asks earlier when he goes to her house, have you been on drugs? Oh, yeah, he I don't knows. think he's so stupid. He knows, but he just doesn't care. He loves her anyway. Um, it's so, it's so lovely. It is. It's just, and it's again, this high wire act of tone mm-hmm. that Anderson, a child man can somehow pull off. He was yeah. so, what was he? 29? Yeah. Some, uh, some offensive age <laughs> to have done something with that. Like to have, and you know, again, and the the a stable of actors who are all such heavyweights, all willing to go with him mm-hmm. on this weird thing that could have gone so wrong. Oh, like, yeah. you know, people sitting in their cars singing along to an Amy Mann song could have been the laughing stock like Ishtar of that year. And you've got Jason Robards in his deathbed singing along. It, it's so beautiful that I just love the hearts of actors who will... Uh, uh, attack things like that and, yeah. and see something through. I don't have any. I don't have any smell in that movie of people um, with one foot out of bed. You know, they're all yeah. just like going after what this guy wanted. Without, I can't imagine entirely understanding it. No, I mean you wouldn't until it's put together, right? You'd have yeah. no idea what it's going to look like or the. Context. And they're also they're also um, you know um, compartmentalized. You know, to not see what other people are doing, to not see you know what your what your performance is like compared to all these other veins you know yeah i mean after Uh, boogie nights it's pretty clear he can handle complex that's fair i I would i would like the buy-in there has to be less Uh uh, daunting but even so it's like no i'm gonna have this happen and this is gonna be a thing and there's gonna be oh don't worry it'll all make sense and it does it does i know it's it's incredible i also it, it the the environment of the movie the valley as a character, sure. I did not understand until I moved here. When I moved <laughs> to LA in 2015, we moved to the Valley to Studio City, and all of a sudden, I realized. I think, as a kid growing up in Canada, all these LA 
locations just sort of feel like a fantasy land. Like they're not actually supposed to be particular. Right. There's, you know, to yeah, my no. mind, that's how I receive them is it's just like, it's some other magical place that isn't specific. And then to, to move to the valley and realize that he was being incredibly specific about a place that he grew up in. And it's this love letter to this weird kind of dirty, boring place. Um, you know, uh, it, it's just so it's the valley is a character in that movie. I didn't know what the title of the movie meant until I moved here. Oh, I see. <laughs> I that was a street. I was like, oh, Magnolia. I see, I see, I see. Yeah, but it's also um, strange and evocative. And, and, you know, you can think of the the, the the poster went a long way with the petals, faces appearing absolutely. on the petals. And it all does make sense that, sure, they would. there are connections that we don't fully understand. Yes. And the elegance of it in the way that he just, he doesn't withhold information. It's just that there's mm-hmm. so much going on that it takes time to orient ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> and, and see how they're all connected. And as, as you pointed out, they are legitimate connections. It's not one of those things where... Yeah. Not to... I, I didn't realize, or I knew there was connections, but I feel like, I felt like they were more random on the first viewing because it's kind of set up that way. You know, the movie is set up to talk about randomness in some way, and they're not. It's a very easy family tree to draw. It yeah. all stems out of... Out of uh, Earl Partridge, and then everyone else stems out from there, and they all have a direct line. And actually, there's a deleted scene. Uh, um, Orlando Jones got cut out of the movie, right? Yeah, playing you see the, him for the, a split second. Right, back, like the back of him shows up in one shot with Riley. Right, and the the but this worm character who I guess kills the guy in the closet from the beginning, um, he would have been if he was in the movie the only guy who was kind of an island. Like he had, he would have nothing to do really with the the game show or Earl Partridge. Yeah. And so I wonder if that was ultimately what Why caused him to get lost from the film. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I mean, know. if you're paring it down and looking for anything that isn't... Yeah, to get down to a lean, mean uh, three hours and eight minutes. <laughs> yeah, which, again, not an, ounce of, not an ounce of fat. I mean, I don't think there's an ounce of fat on it. I, uh, Anderson has subsequently said that he would cut it shorter, but I just... Yeah, I mean, it's... It's one of those things where I worry about artists who, I mean, he's not George Lucas. He's not actually going to do it. But I worry about artists who feel that once the public um, take on their movie has changed, they feel Mm -hmm. like they have to roll along with it consciously or unconsciously. Yeah, I guess at some point it got this rap for being indulgent. And I guess it's a fair argument to make when a movie is that long. Yeah, and it is. Like, stylistically, it's it's grandiose, but it doesn't, it needs to be. That's what this is. Yeah, it all feels like it's on purpose, and it all feels like he was going after something, and I think I think really achieved something special. I would it would be a completely different thing if this was a ninety minute movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I don't. I mean, Boogie Nights also needs to be as long as it is because yes. it's covering decades, and mm-hmm. this is you know the, the the elegance of having all of this happen at once to this many people yeah. sort of demands that scope as well. I yeah. don't. Yeah, I don't know what you... You could lose a prologue, I guess, but you need it, too. You need to set the stage. It's it's the overture. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And this is Which what Which is I, like... It, like, I have no idea why Ricky Jay gets to be the narrator of that movie, other than he has a very interesting, sort of unique voice. Yeah. But, like, why that guy? Why does that guy get to be the one who, who tells us about the, the world we're about to step into? He is later revealed to be the, I guess, floor director of the game show? Yeah, he shows up. But also one of his books is around. So Ricky Jay exists in this uh-huh. universe. It's just, 
I think it's just that he's the guy you go to with the cabinet of curiosities and the uh-huh. and the magics and the and the stories. Right. And right. he was he's in Boogie Nights, right? He shows up there somewhere. Yeah, he's in it. It's, so, that's what's crazy to me too is you look at and like all these little bit parts. Like people just stick around with this filmmaker. They want to come back and play. It's such a it's such a great um, sign of a, 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 a what I imagine to be a relatively joyous process. I hope it is. I'd be so sad to hear that it's not. Yeah. But I, people kept coming back. I, I want to say, I don't think Daniel Day-Lewis would make like three movies with him. In, yeah, right? If he was a dick to people. I can't imagine. At least I hope not. Yeah. And um, I think, I mean, I, I I have met him, actually, come to think of it. Because uh-huh. the whole oh, point, wow. yeah, the whole point of this was I, I uh, the TFCA gave him best picture. I think picture director and screenplay It might have been the first time. But we would have uh, dinner at an Italian restaurant on St. Clair West, and uh, it was inevitably the first or second week of January, and things were invariably, it was the coldest night of the year. And he came. He actually came. He he and Fiona Apple both attended the dinner. Um, Mm -hmm. And my, I sat one person to the left of and directly across from Apple, and she was fascinating. Just this uh-huh. ethereal presence, just sitting there, clearly not comfortable and not really knowing sure. what to say or what the vibe yes. was. Like it was, and it was this really eccentric dinner where the the restaurant owner would come and sing. He would insist because the film critics were there, and therefore they oh, were going to sense his talent. So he would bring, I think it was an accordion, and he would just sing uh-huh. uh, a song every time. It was it was great because by then we were all a little drunk. Sure. Uh, but he, but Anderson and Apple snuck out to smoke cigarettes. And it was minus 20 Celsius. Yeah. It was hideously cold. And the commitment as well. Yeah, exactly. And the clear memory I have is the two of them. He was wearing like a suit jacket and she's wearing a puffy uh-huh. coat and they're smoking cigarettes. And on the way out, I just said, please tell me you're going to get some warmer clothes. And they're like, ah, we'll be fine. <laughs> and then they came back in five minutes later, blue. Um, yeah. That is the totality of my interaction with Paul Thomas Anderson. That's pretty but, good. That's better than mine. But he seems like a... At the time, anyway, he seemed like a really present person. Like, he was Uh just aware of everything that was going on around him. He was sort of listening to five conversations at once in this big crowd. There must have been 30 people there. And he was tracking all of it. And he was checking with Fiona Apple, and they were talking back. Mm -hmm. You know, there was always... He was maintaining a connection to her while doing all of this other stuff. And it was... Again, he was 30, maybe? He was a... I mean, I was 32, 31, 32. We were about the same age, and it was just jarring to see how yeah. prepossessing he was and how just how much better put together he was it's socially. Terrifying. I mean, I was thinking when you, when you asked about choosing a movie for this, you know, I was like, oh, well, I should try to pick something that lines up with, with this movie of uh, Aaron Abrams and, and mine that's coming out. Um, oh, yeah, Magnolia know, like, and the so, Lovebirds are effectively the same film. Yeah, the same film, right? And I just didn't do it. I was just like, well, no, I want to talk. I, I, a movie I'm going to talk about for an hour, it should be one that means something to me, I think. Um, and, uh, but... One of the, it's actually a weird kind of origin story for Aaron and I in that we had heard, you know, um, I think on the commentary track, P.T. Anderson talks about having gone to William H. Macy's cabin to write this. Right. He, yeah. He was, he, he went to his cabin for two weeks or whatever and pumped out this first draft of, of this movie, Magnolia. And we were like, that's bullshit. <laughs> uh, and we were like, well, let's try to do it. So that was how we wrote the go-getters was like hold up at um, a house, you know, and obviously completely comparable movies in terms of, uh, you know, um, uh, 
you know, size, proportion, sure. epicness, very well, similar. They're both um, about no, but interconnected I mean, characters in a particularly <laughs> yeah, downbeat no. part of town. Sure. Uh, but that was, the, that, so in some ways, you know, it's very fitting that it's Magnolia because that was, uh, that it was Aaron and I trying to um, uh, prove this theory wrong, that this could be done, that uh, that brought us together to, to write our first movie. And then, uh, and then you know, so it's, it's got a connection. Yeah. Well, The Go-Getters is 82 minutes. And... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 82, which is a very important number in, in the Magnolia universe. I was going to say, it's... I don't. I don't know that you could write this movie at length, right? Like it would have to yeah, boil out of you. Have to spill out of you. I guess maybe he spent his whole life writing it, and then he it was in his bones and blood, and then he just like bled it onto a typewriter or whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's never done anything like it since. No. And, but again, I can't imagine the need to. I don't know why you would ever go near any of this stuff ever again after you'd done something like this movie. It is. It is so perfectly itself. Yeah, and I, I, feel, I return to this movie like I feel like after it came out, I got it on DVD. Whenever people started getting DVD players, and then I would for sure watch this movie at least once a year for probably the next handful of years. And then I haven't gone back to it in over ten years, uh, and until the other night to to watch it for this. And it's it was like a it was like an enveloping uh, three hour hug. I was so happy to be back. Yeah, I find that rewatching it. I mean, this happens with almost any movie, even a bad movie. If you see it a second time, isn't as bad because you you internalize the narrative and you know where it's going and right. you approach it differently. I find Magnolia. I have watched it since that first time, and it's never. Yeah, the fact that you said hug is exactly right. I I only felt anxious the first time. Right, and even, there's a lot of anxiety the first time. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. just the heart in your throat, uh, oh, absolute, so you know, panic attacky kind of yeah. intensity. And mm-hmm. now knowing that it is going to be okay, mm-hmm. except for the people who don't make it. And even that right. is like, there's a grace there. Well, there's a release to it. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's going to be all grace right. Note too. When Robards dies, the coroner comes and takes away him and his little dog that died from licking up the pills on the floor. The dog gets taken out on a stretcher with a sheet over it the same way that Jason Robards does. Yeah. I can't imagine that's how uh, that would go in no, real life. it would not. No. But it is beautiful, right? Like, it's, and it, and yeah, this it's lovely, not the, surreal little thing like, yeah, you yeah. die on the same day as your dog and you both go in the same same truck. Yeah, and they're both treated with the same care. And yeah. that is, I mean, it's not the biggest swing of of that movie and no. by a long shot, but I think it's the one that you risk losing the audience the most because that's... I hadn't even thought of it until this time I was like oh yeah they take the dog there's so much going on I mean Cruz is just reunited with his dad and lost him in the in the in, you know in the stretch of like 15 minutes and and everyone is oh, their stories are culminating this dog on a stretcher I almost don't see it yeah and I'm like wait a second they're taking the dog too yeah and it's almost it, like it could be funny if it if it lands wrong yeah. if the if I think the, it, it maybe is funny I don't I can't yeah. imagine it was done entirely seriously yeah but it's still but it felt beautiful, right? Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel dismissive. No. It doesn't feel like you're making a joke about the dog's death. No. And it, no, not at all. Again, just to know that you can get away with it, that you'll have people at that point in your film. The, yes. the um, Edgar Wright said, I quote this line all the time, too. Edgar Wright said once about Scott Pilgrim that the trick is to direct that movie, you have to make sure all the actors, everybody on the crew are pulling the line at the same tension. Uh, like a tug of war analogy, but there's no one tugging on the other side. Everybody's maintaining it themselves. Right. And this is that. Like, this is knowing you can do this before you ever step yeah. in front of a camera. 
it's such a leap of faith. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. And also, it occurs to me, um, all the characters have people ultimately in their lives. There's a, there's at least another person to, to pull that string with. But in some ways, Philip Seymour Hoffman doesn't get that. Like, he, he is the shepherd. He's shepherding this guy from this life to death. Yeah. And he does it. He's such a lovely man. Clearly, like, he is very good at his job. Um, but the last shot with him, he's by himself. You know, you, you have, I think, Tom Cruise talking to Julian Moore on the phone in the background or talking to the hospital. And he doesn't even get to grieve, really, with Cruise because he knows this guy just lost his dad who he's been estranged from like that the level of grief and mourning that this guy's going through doesn't compare to a, a home care nurse necessarily mm-hmm. and this is his job he should be used to this but also like he clearly cared about jason robards and loved him and he is suffering his own private grief but he does it entirely in isolation turned away like we get we get his face in the camera but no other actor in the scene knows that he is having his own little private it's so so lovely that's yeah. where that's where all the water comes out of my face in that movie is that moment. And also the one that gets me strangely is when um, John C. Riley returns to the door to ask um, Laura Walters out on a date. And she yeah. says, you want to ask me on a date? And he's like, yeah, I do. And like just there's something so like that that makes me cry every time too. Well, it's because those moments. Yeah. I think it's because the, the referred anxiety from the first viewing is like, if this doesn't go well, I'm, yeah. never, I'm never leaving this theater. I'm going to wait That's here right. for him to make that better. And yes. he'll deliver a print that fixes this. Yes. The the mm-hmm. sense of yeah, I mean, I you you know, I'm a critic. I, I invest in fictional characters all the time. That's mm-hmm. what I do. But the 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 sheer terror of things not going well. Yes, for all of them. But there is nothing in the film to me that says that Anderson wants them to suffer. Like that's No, and I'll go back on what I said. I think if the more I think about it, they all get some sliver of hope however big or small every almost every character like i was just remembering the kid in the in the quiz show even goes up to his dad who's asleep in bed and he's like dad you have to be nicer to me yeah the dad is like go away just go to bed or whatever but the kid's like you got to be nicer to me and the kid leaves and it's like well it didn't land for the dad but at least this kid knows this is not okay yeah and so as opposed to getting like quiz kid donnie whatever his name is, who's going to be broken his whole life. Maybe this kid figured it out at the age of, of 10 or whatever, that you're going to break this cycle and, and, and something has to change. Yeah. And we all kind of get that, right? Yeah. Riley well, gets he, his gun back. Yeah, that's right. And drops out of the sky with the frogs right after he talks about redemption. Yeah. And the possibility of a relationship that will save him in other ways, like not mm-hmm. his soul necessarily, but at least make him a better person and, and complete him as a human. Right. Uh, she gets the same. It's just, it's this, even Philip Baker Hall, who wants to kill himself, gets saved by a frog. He yep. doesn't even get, he doesn't blow his brains out. The, the world doesn't let him. Yeah. Now, whether that's hope or whether that's you got to live with what you did yeah. after the acknowledgement that he abused his daughter, maybe that's not, maybe that's not a, a, a saving him. Maybe that's, maybe that's, you don't get to escape. Yeah. I think that's the God part. I think that's, right. you know, no, you don't get that. You don't get the yeah. way out. Yeah. But it still leaves open the possibility that something could be better right for someone not necessarily him but maybe she'll get to confront him maybe there's something right uh, down the line and there's a reason maybe there's a reason that's what like that's my uh animating principle for this for anything that happens in any movie is like i there's got to be a reason for this down the line and yes magnolia is all about that possibility that 
you can fix not your life but your perspective that all you mm-hmm. like it, again it's it's the end of wise up right just give up right. but they won't and no one will well the perspective thing there's a scene there's a scene in that bar with William H Macy talking to the old man at the bar whose name is Thurston Howell? Isn't yes. Isn't that the exact same name as the old man from Gilligan's Island? Uh, the what was the Jim, rich guy's Jim name? Jim Backus's character was Thurston Howell III. So okay. it's, it's clearly intentional, but it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Unless, like, the man was being facetious in giving his name to another barfly. Maybe Possibly, that's not yeah. his real name. I was, like, trying to make sense of why your name would be Thurston Howell. Well, and but it's he's kind of a Thurston right? Howell. Yeah, he yeah. is a very, like, sort of, like, strange, effete rich slumming guy but at any rate they have that scene in the bar uh and within one scene i was trying to figure out if this was an instance that actually feels like maybe bad writing Uh, it has to be intentional but within one scene you have william h macy saying i confuse melancholia with depression right and then later on he says i'm sick i'm in love and thurston howell says you seem to me like the kind of person who confuses the two and then in that same scene, as they're leaving, Thurston Howell says, don't confuse children with angels. So in one little scene, you have them talking about confusing one thing with another three times. What is that? Well, Henry Gibson is like the closest thing this film has to an avatar for Robert Altman movies. Uh-huh. Other than the direct associations that... that to Philip Baker Hall. Or, yeah. yeah, well, they, that he's playing with. But when mm-hmm. Gibson shows up, I almost wondered if he was the character from Nashville under an assumed name, which is just obviously fake. Because why wouldn't he be I mean, at this point? Yeah. He's washed uh-huh. up. He's in Los Angeles, this former sure. country star who is now trying in his weird way to offer wisdom. And it... Uh-huh. Like, in an antagonistic way. Yeah, it's the only way that makes sense to me that that guy is that guy. But even if he is saying don't confuse children with angels because he's an angel. I mean, there are angels in the film, or at least sure. people who act as angels, like Philip Seymour yeah. Hoffman's character, who is mm-hmm. absolutely selfless and, and there to usher someone into death. And and Riley for Macy at the end. I yeah. Mean, yeah. William H. Macy would be fucked if John C. Riley didn't come back and help him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Put that money back and put him in the car and send him on his way. <laughs> yeah. There are a bit. That's it, right? Like the is grace a human thing or is it something that comes from outside uh-huh. is that scene there because it's the anchor for a pivot in the film when things start to change i don't like i don't know and i still puzzle I over these William things William macy makes worse choices after that scene that's true but he's he goes and robs his store after yeah. that <laughs> but is he choosing to reject like the advice right uh, yeah. like is that is that where it comes in i don't right. know and it, and it's so the film is so dense and rich with mm-hmm. potential for meaning um that any of these explanations is equally valid very possible yes. right as long as people work as long as it works out in the end for everybody right but again i just uh, there are so many films that try for something like this and go mm-hmm. wide or they don't work at all mm-hmm. there are i mean people i i Watched, uh, I rewatched Paul Haggis's Crash a little while ago and found that it oh, holds sure. up. It holds up surprisingly well. Does it? Uh, yeah, oh, given his reputation. Yeah. Subsequently, right? Um, I think Green Book did a lot to knock that uh, down. A <laughs> knock it down again. It's the yeah, worst sure. Oscar winner. Yeah, no. Ooh. Crash is a movie about people. Again, it's it's a film that is made in the shadow of Magnolia. I think it's mm-hmm. a multi-character study of Los Angeles that's about other things, but he's trying for the same yeah. continuum of characters and connectivity. But it has a certain earnestness and honesty 
about what it is that I still respect and that I think comes through. Sure. Magnolia is more opaque. It holds its cards. It holds the the movie is holding its cards close to the chest, even when the characters are putting it all out there. Sure, but I, I would also say it's also like the flourish of the, of Magnolia, the virtuosity of the filmmaking of the visuals of Magnolia is such mm-hmm. a weird contrast to to how um, how how close it is holding the cards to its chest uh, in terms of meaning. Yeah, you kind of you get swept up and you don't care, or you you certainly don't feel like you're supposed you're supposed to know. You don't you know it's yeah yeah no i mean it's true it's the it's not that important you know Mm -hmm. to to understand what it's about as long as you understand what happens at the end like where where we are where everybody ends up and which is wrestling yeah which is why that shot of of malora walters just looking up into the camera is so shattering it's and smiling yeah it's the first time she's expressed well she's been happy ish Mm -hmm. but it's the first time she's expressed any kind of hope well, and it's interesting, too, that last scene, Riley comes in. You never see his face. It's all on her the whole time. Yeah, and yeah. you don't really get to hear what they're saying. He's talking to her, but the music is so loud by that time, it completely overwhelms the dialogue. So all you're left with is the sense of what's being said. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that it's positive based on the fact that he sits on the bed and that she looks at us and smiles. Yeah. But really, you barely get to hear what the content is. I, I think it has to be that way. It's, per- it's a perfect ending because yes. it really is down to her. Like it doesn't. It's down to her, and no words I think would satisfy. I exactly think because it's the culmination of three hours of talking and feeling, and 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 mistakes and car crashes of people together, and uh, you could not write a scene that would hold up to that demand. Yeah, and it, I think you know his his again he does it he does similar things with um, with drowning out dialogue in. Um, in Punch Drunk Love, where the soundtrack uh-huh. is intrusive, where it where it pushes into people's conversations, and where you know where Shelley Duvall singing "He Needs Me" from Robert Altman's Popeye overwhelms right. the rest of the film, and then there's no dialogue in the first 15 minutes of "There Will Be Blood." It feels just like right. something elemental at work in his films, where yeah. he wants to he wants us to stop trying to hear people and just mm-hmm. look and just understand, right? Um, which is a larger expression of magnolia anyway the whole thing is about empathy the whole thing is about listening to other people when they're in pain or in uh understanding why they are who they are even if riley gives us that too riley gives us that to malora walters at at the date he says i'm gonna i'd be a good listener to you i wouldn't judge you i would just listen and it's so so beautiful i think yeah i just think that anderson again yeah you're right he left it all out there there's no need for him Mm -hmm. to make another one of these I'm, I forgive him for second thoughts now because it's irrelevant. Sure. The movie's done. He can't take yeah. it away. No, just take the canvas away. Don't let him near brushes. <laughs> it's not yours anymore. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. And the uh, and it comes with this. I'm sure you've, by now you've seen the documentary that was included on the DVD, right? The 75 oh, yeah. minute. To see what he was going through when he made it. Yeah. And how he burned to do it. To to. Like yes. the need to get it out and then the need to shoot it and the need to cut it and put it into the world. I, I understand, like, to come way back to the story I was telling you at the beginning, why it took mm-hmm. so long to get it in front of people. Oh, yeah, to get it right. Yeah, but it is. And it's- especially, I mean, he fought to get cut, I, I guess, after Heart 8 was taken away from him. I'm sure that was a major priority for him. And then Boogie Nights was well-received, and, and that was his cut, I believe, right? I think so, yeah. Uh, and so... It's, but that's a that's a double edged sword because now you know that 
people are like, well, this is, this is all you, man. This is going to be for right or wrong, your decisions up here. Uh, And you've got, you've got three hours of decisions to make. So, you know, so much time for things to go horribly wrong. Um, the, the tightrope that he's walking through that movie is, is incredible. Yeah. I would, I mean, I think I would watch a set diary day to day just to watch him, just to see how he, he manages to stay alive. Yes. (laughs) Well, I, I don't remember a bunch about that doc, but I do remember there's a lovely little bit where he's talking to Philip Seymour Hoffman and it almost feels like maybe their first day on set together and they're like old friends or whatever, but he's like giving Philip Seymour a hard time about dealing with props where he's like, oh yeah, Philip Seymour, he's going to come in here, you're going to pick this up and then you're going to move this around and blah, blah, blah. And they just got these huge smiles on their faces. You know, the, the, the joy of, of filmmaking and collaboration is so clear. Um, and I, I would imagine it's, you know, it was like that for a lot of those guys with, with him. Um, they just, they, they just all attack and in such an amazing way. Yeah. Um, I mean, how can you, you facilitated not? that? I mean, yeah. How could you not, you, you, you have a guy who's got a vision and then you have to rise to that vision and you have to give back as, as much as, you know, as you're, as you're receiving from him. Yeah. Um, the only case of, as far as I know, the only case of an actor who is not, comfortable with working with him was was Burt Reynolds right who oh, famous, sure. famously did not understand what Boogie Nights was about and which makes which is not surprising at all I know but it's amazing right because that role only well I mean it could have worked with another actor but it only works as yes. well as it does because of who Burt Reynolds is and what he's bringing to That's the table right. and the idea that he that Anderson got him there without his cooperation somehow yes. or his full understanding is fascinating to me because everybody but, else like, yeah, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman doesn't give that performance. Heather Graham doesn't give that performance. Julianne mm-hmm. Moore, without knowing exactly what they're doing. No. And he's the only, like, Reynolds is the only one whose obliviousness actually serves the character. Oh, yeah, I would imagine. I, I can't imagine even that Anderson would have made it a priority to make Reynolds understand it because uh, he wouldn't need to understand it. He just needs to get that mustache in front of the camera. <laughs> Yeah, it does have to work. <laughs> that like, you know, self-important, uh, what the fuck is going on here kind of mustache. And then uh, and th- that'll do the work. It's It speaks volumes on its own. Yeah. Oh, man. I just, there's so much about this movie that I want to keep playing with. And and then I'm still annoyed uh, to anyone listening that no one has picked Boogie Nights. The only other Anderson film we've done right. has been There Will Be Blood, which... Shocks I wonder me. if it's too, like, is it, is Anderson feel too on the nose in terms of like... I, I feel like in some ways I felt the pressure to pick some kind of obscure thing that no, that I love <laughs> that no one else has heard of that you must, oh, you really must watch. And I was going through my list and I was like, no, I just, I want to talk about this movie. Like, you know, this movie is, is in my, my, my body as a, as a, a thing that, that changed the way I looked at movies and the things that changed the way I looked at storytelling. Um, and, uh, why wouldn't I want to talk about this for an hour as opposed to adventures in babysitting? Those are the best ones. They really are the ones that people carry with them. I just, yeah. no, not a single guest I don't think has ever really struggled to talk about the movie they've chosen, but sometimes yeah. it's just really clear that they want to talk about this one and th- or that they've right. been needing to for a while and then it all <laughs> yeah, just comes I didn't know I know how much I needed to talk about Magnolia yeah and it all just comes rolling <laughs> out um, yeah yeah no I'm so glad you picked it and I, I'm sure we barely scratched this so I don't think we've talked enough at all you can never talk enough about uh, Julianne Moore or um, oh my god yeah yeah her performance in the pharmacy getting those pills being judged by the pharmacists and they're half they're mostly right yeah. that she shouldn't be getting those pills but her her heartbreak and 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 the slow menacing kind of pushes of her being aware that she's being watched and then just 
laying into that pharmacist is so that performance is so good yeah she's got i mean she's i think Moore is always at her best when she is hiding a layer when she's withholding mm-hmm. something from the other actors but not from the camera right and just the, those little micro jaw movements uh. the, when she goes from being unhappy to worried yeah. to angry to furious uh-huh. and then swallowing it and then finally letting it out it's just again she's she's a stunning specimen of a human being right the, yeah. the jaw and the and the cheekbones and all of sure. it but to watch her control herself so beautifully and just mm-hmm. it's like a master class in face acting yes and still being emotionally committed the face acting thing i mean there are people who do it well there are people who think they do it well and they're mm-hmm. just ridden with ticks but she does it invisibly. It's like her and Chastain. Yeah, she doesn't have too. any. I, I can't. I can't. I don't think of Julianne Moore as having like a bag of tricks. If she does, they're they're the best tricks in the world because yeah. I, you don't see any of them. I mean, she can cry on cue. That's her. That sure. that was her thing for the entire '90s. There would always be a scene sure. where she just wells up and breaks. Yeah, she's but, real good at that. But she's the best, exactly. Like, yeah. why wouldn't you cast her I for something? Not, like I would that? never begrudge her that that, yeah. that, that that trick. And here, it's that she doesn't cry. Like she's just mm. holding it all in while mm. still doing what she needs to do in that scene and it's such a like the it's such a tragic story of that character with the with the, the jason robards earl partridge character of this you know it was a marriage i guess of of they both got something out of it clearly sure uh but they weren't in love and then she really she's torn apart at the end because uh she's finally realized she loves this guy as he's dying and that she's not been a good wife to him from her point of view yeah at the same time all Robards is talking about on his deathbed is his first wife and his son. He really doesn't talk about her at all, except for a very little bit at the beginning, saying she's a good girl, I think. I think she's a good girl. Yeah. But they're just missing each other, you know, in time. is is She's found, she's finally found this guy that she actually, and who knows whether it's real or whether it's just guilt, but, yeah. you know, that she she wants, she wants to be with this guy that she can't be with anymore. Yeah, and then also ironically can't be with him while he dies the same way Jason Robards couldn't be with his first wife while she died, uh, so he gets the same treatment that that he gave a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean it's but, poetic and crushing, and mm-hmm. and it's the this yeah the sense it, it's his speech about regret right like she's yeah. going to regret she wasn't going to before and now it's there oh yeah it's passed it to her somehow even though it wasn't you know, conscious or deliberate on any level. Yeah. It's just happened. His, he's repeating his previous uh, loss that mm-hmm. wasn't there for him. Like he didn't get, to, he's passed that to her instead. That's right. Ugh. Oh man. I know it's in there too. I know it's on the page or at least he thought of Absolutely. like Anderson knew he was doing it. Yeah. But it's just, it's, it's there for us to find 20 years later. Uh-huh. Oh, <sighs> I'm so glad you picked it. God this damn it. Me too. No, it's good. Um, so, yeah, we haven't really talked about the Lovebirds, but... Uh, oh, sure. <laughs> is there a connection anywhere? Uh, the, the closer on the podcast is always whether something of this film has uh, influenced you or that you've just outright stolen or borrowed and incorporated <laughs> into your own creativity. I, mean, uh, I don't think there's... I don't know how I would concretely steal from this movie, but I think it's aspirationally in everything it's probably in some ways one of the movies i hold up as a a a reminder of how i'm not good enough (laughs) you know of just like i you know i always think of myself as as um i respond all i want to do is feel all all i want to do is have my heart ripped out i want to laugh i want to i want to 
cry my eyes out. And I, I, you know, I often gravitate for whatever reason towards things that aren't that in a lot of ways that are comedies or action or, you know, I've, or I've been pulled into those things, these sort of very fast paced, um, uh, flashy action kind of, or comedy rat-a-tat type things. But all, all I want to do is watch ordinary people. <laughs> all I want to do is watch Magnolia. And so I think maybe, um, maybe before I die, I'll, I'll try to steal from Magnolia and, uh, and, and do something that is that, um, that that is that heartfelt. I think it scares me how heartfelt that movie is. That's that's that is the um, the incredible gift of that film is what a never ending shotgun blast of feeling and and true heartfelt intention that whole thing is. Um, it's it's a scary thing, but to receive it is so um, just shattering so to to maybe someday get the courage to try to <laughs> to try to do anything any my my version of that which would never be that but you know um, no no it no it sets a high bar absolutely i i, I mean lovebirds is uh it happens over one night that's the <laughs> that's the crossover to magnolia and lovebirds is it's it, it is also one one crazy night albeit a very different palette <laughs> <laughs> i would say it's about hope Sure, Two? absolutely. Let's go with that. Yeah, yeah. It's about hope. It's about yeah. They 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 start off in a pretty rough place. Uh, kind of feels like they're near the end, and then they they they're trying to find each other through the movie as they're trying to save save each other. Yeah, um, I, we're in a dicey place, or at least I'm in a dicey place because technically sure. there's an embargo, and I'm not supposed to talk about. It. I'm not. My review won't run until Wednesday, the day after this episode comes out. But I will say that I really admire the way that the couples therapy elements of the film emerge entirely through arguing through right. uh you know the the movie has a great runner about using conversation as a way to reveal both how frustrating these people are to each other and also uh-huh. how much they still understand each other and that's yeah you know to go back to the thing about people who learn from each other and become better people because of their relationships eh, this kind of does that yeah, i just, sure I, I can't talk about why that's all yeah fair enough um yeah i'll take it i'll take it i'll take any 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 six degree of kevin bacon to to you can you can possibly delve and force into uh oh <laughs> to love birds. this is what i do great my thanks to brendan gall whose new film the lovebirds premieres on netflix this friday may 22nd you should also check out the final season of blind spot which is running thursday nights on nbc and ctv it's a very silly show and i'm going to miss it when it's gone Thanks also to Aaron Abrams. He knows what he did. You can find Brendan on Twitter at GallBrendan, all one word, and you can find Magnolia on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play, and in the U.S. you can find it streaming on Netflix. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where, in addition to my film duties, I'm hosting a new podcast called Now What?, where I interview Torontonians about the weird new normal of self-isolation. You can find it Tuesdays and Fridays in your podcatcher of choice, and you can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps, it truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. Jordan Heath Rawlings' The Big Story continues to be essential listening every weekday. Stay inside, watch movies. I'll see you next week. <laughs>